0: from the front lines of the Green Rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey everybody, welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Jonathan Small and I am editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. 40,000 people in this country are incarcerated for cannabis related convictions some of them quite minor offenses and many of those people have absolutely nightmarish stories to share about why they are in prison for something as harmless as cannabis my guest is one of those people evelyn la chapelle in 2009 evelyn was arrested for what for all intents and purposes is a pretty minor crime involving cannabis. Well, she was convicted in 2012 for that crime and spent 87 months in prison. Evelyn joins us today on the podcast. She is now Community Engagement Manager of Vertosa, which is a cannabis and hemp infusion technology company. She is also on the advisory board of The Last Prisoner Project, which is a nonprofit devoted to criminal justice reform For people incarcerated for cannabis crimes at all stages. Evelyn hosts an IGTV interview series about normalizing cannabis called The Heart of Cannabis. So I actually have a personal connection to this story. In 2009, I worked in an office near a Citibank in Beverly Hills, California. And every week or so, I would deposit checks at that bank. And I struck up a friendship With a teller at the bank who was pregnant with her first child at exactly the same time that my wife was pregnant with her second child. So we talked pregnancy and kids and just joked around a lot and struck up a a bit of a sort of casual friendship. Well, cut to 10 years later, I'm interviewing Evelyn for this story and she starts to tell me that she used to work at a Citibank on Wilshire Boulevard and I take a look at picture of her online, and I realized, oh my god, you're the bank teller that I used to talk to. I'd always wondered what became of her. Wow, I could never have dreamed that that wonderful, bubbly, pregnant woman at the bank would have to undergo such a nightmare scenario. So anyway, here we are now, and thankfully Evelyn has turned a corner in her life, and we hope that her story is sort of a lesson to legislators out there, still criminalize marijuana despite it being legal in a majority of states in our country evelyn LaChapelle, welcome to the green entrepreneur podcast
1: thank you so much for having me thank you for welcoming me
0: no you are you are quite an extraordinary person extraordinary story and thank you for sharing it with us i know it's not always easy to relive sort of a very dark period of your life but it has somewhat of a happy ending so Spoiler alert! <laughs> yeah, There's going to be a happy, end. on
1: the happy ending. So yeah. we're
0: still working on that. Okay. Well, I like that it's it's certainly better than it was a few years ago. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we actually knew each other. Although it took us a minute, it took me a minute to figure this out that I had, you had actually been my bank teller at Citibank way back before this all went down with the law. So I want to. I think we should just give people an overview of what your life was like before you were arrested. Like. You had a normal, like when I first met you, you were pregnant with your to-be daughter. And the reason we connected is because my wife was also pregnant with her daughter. And we turned out that our kids were almost almost exactly the same age. So we just kind of like bonded over that. And then I would just like your bank, the bank was right near my office. So I would go and swing by there every month to like, or if two weeks to deposit my checks and probably just to talk to you a little bit. I <laughs> probably could have used the ATM machine, but just to talk to you a little bit and then lost track, whatever. And I think maybe I went to the bank one day and you just weren't there anymore. But tell me what was going on in your life right before this went.
1: Absolutely, so my life when you knew me at Citibank was, I was uh, studying at Loyola Marymount for my bachelor's degree. I was in my third year, I believe, when I was pregnant with my child. And that was also during the time that I had got involved with this cannabis conspiracy, but that was just far from my mind.
0: So at that time that I knew you were probably already a little bit involved in this cannabis conspiracy. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Honestly, too, it was only for the duration of the pregnancy. So I was only involved as long as my baby was blooming in my belly. And then a month before I had her in October, that was 2009. I just didn't have time to be involved in a cannabis conspiracy and work and school and be a mother. So I dropped the cannabis conspiracy and moved on with my uh, regular life and graduated from Loyola 2011, right? I was married in 2010, graduated in 2011, happily divorced in 2012. And then I moved back home, uh, which is why you didn't see me in the bank anymore. I moved back to Oakland, California. And that is where the story starts. And that's where it all starts to unfold.
0: So you say you call it a cannabis conspiracy now, but that's not what you considered it during that time. So tell me what it was like, what my understanding is that a friend approached you to basically deposit money for him. And he would give you a little bit of money to do that for him. And your understanding was what? What, what was this money from? Did you know it was coming from marijuana profits, illegal marijuana profits?
1: So here's the the very candid conversation. You always get all the exclusives. (laughs) And so, like I said, I had just found out that I was pregnant. I was in a very toxic relationship with my soon-to-be husband, now ex-husband. And so my friend who was involved in this illegal cannabis was really, for me, it was less about an economic opportunity and really more about a shoulder to lean on. And so uh, Corvan Cooper, he's serving life, was really the my emotional support through the entire pregnancy and through that relationship. So when he asked me, would I be willing to deposit the funds? The conversation went exactly like this. Hey, I've got funds coming from North Carolina, from the marijuana is what it was called then. Now it's called cannabis. <laughs> What a different world! And I'm using Western Union to get the funds, and their Western Union is charging like three fifty. You could save me a lot, and I'll pay you two hundred bucks for every transaction. And so for me, it was more—it was a lot less about the two hundred bucks, and it was more just about uh, reciprocating my friendship. And I've said this a thousand times. Had it been any other substance it would have been an easy no i didn't give it much thought considering it was cannabis i've been in california my whole life just my attitude about it completely lacks and i never i never ever ever considered the consequences
0: yeah you never considered that would be and yeah so let's so you you're from oakland um you went to university in, in los angeles to loyola and what was your background with can like marijuana whatever they called it back then I mean, did you partake in it, or was it just something you knew about? It was like in your life, like people you knew did it, whatever.
1: I fell in love with cannabis around the age of nineteen, right when I got, to, right when I got to college. So I've always loved it. Almost was a connoisseur, like that type of kid, and yeah, and had it consumed up until the pregnancy.
0: Okay, so you had a good relationship with cannabis, yeah. like in, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, it wasn't just like. What is this strange?
1: No, 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 we had a wonderful relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay.
0: So you're doing this for your friend and life goes on, right? You, you, I mean, not, it sounds like you had a, not a great, as you said, a toxic relationship with your husband. So that, that ended. Your daughter was born. You moved back up to Oakland. And at that point, you, what, you were working another job or?
1: So, yeah, at this point, I've come home. I have, this is what really shocks me is that I had come home and got licensed through the state of California for, to be a life insurance sales. And for that, you have to be fingerprinted and everything is run and I, not a problem. I pass that with flying colors, my license is issued. And then two months later, I'm stopped by a sheriff. I don't have my ID on me and he runs my name and now there's a warrant. And so it's like, how did this not happen?
0: You, you, you were stopped by a sheriff on a, on a traffic. I rate.
1: was stopped uh, by a sheriff in front of my mom's house because a neighbor reported a suspicious car, a reported black people outside.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Jesus. <laughs> and well, some bad. things never change. Here we go. <laughs> and that was in Oakland.
1: That, yeah, that's like it was in San Lorenzo, which is like right on the outside of Oakland. But she had just moved to a, a, like a gated condo uh, community. And I had went outside to smoke. My mom would have allowed me to smoke on the patio, but I'm just going to sit in the car. I was only outside, no longer than 15 minutes. Cannabis is completely legal. So when the sheriff approaches the car, I am still completely unconcerned. I'm just like, hey, there's there's no illegal weed in the car. There's actually no weed in the car. I'm going in the house and I'm going to go to bed. And, and he, he ran my name and I'm still thinking this is not an issue. It's legal. And then he informs me that there's a warrant for my arrest from something from four years ago.
0: Did he explain to you what it was?
1: Oh, I wish he had, he, that was above his pay grade. And so all he could tell me was it was ICE. So you think ICE, you think immigration. And so now me and my mom, cause I holler for my mom to come outside. So Now me and my mom are trying to explain to this officer that I'm not an immigrant, that I was born here. And you know, and we go through all of that.
0: Why was it an ICE thing?
1: I just think that when it's a federal thing, that that's maybe how it pops up on their screen above their pay grade.
0: Yeah, and so you you're telling so at this point, are you freaking out a little bit?
1: I'm freaking out a little bit, but in my head, if it's an ICE issue, we're gonna get this worked out.
0: Yeah, right. Like I'm not an immigrant. Is your mother an, an immigrant?
1: No, no,
0: no. Which <laughs> is just, it's just <laughs> nothing. All right, so this is not gonna be a big deal. You you weren't doing anything illegal. This warrant out for your arrest sounds strange, but maybe it's a mistake. Do they take you in immediately to the to the station? He
1: takes me immediately, and it's late. It's like 11. I wish I remember what night of the week it was, but I do know it was the 22nd of August. It was the night before my dad's birthday of 2012, and I get to the county jail. I still don't know what's going on. It's, it's not until I'm arraigned, and I don't remember if that was the next day. That must have been the very next day. I was arraigned in the federal court. And then for the first time, I'm hearing conspiracy to distribute with the intent to sell marijuana and conspiracy uh, for money laundering. Both guidelines are up to 20 years.
0: Holy crap. And did you know right away what it was referring to? I had an
1: idea then. Yeah. Right.
0: Because that had been a number of years before.
1: Right. This is what I knew when I knew because it was it said out of North Carolina in the courtroom, they said, North Carolina and I was, right.
0: and you knew your friend was in North Carolina. Right,
1: right, right.
0: Okay. And what was his name again? Cor- Corvain Cor- Cooper. Corvain Cooper. Were you in touch with Corvain Cooper at that time? Or you have you been out of touch with him.
1: I hadn't talked to Corvain since the baby was born. So October, 2009, um, he also had a daughter. So we all have daughters at the same time. His daughter was born in August and mine in October. And we just sort of decided to focus on our relationships and had not seen or talked to each other since 2009.
0: So once you found out what it was for, now you're getting a little more nervous because you're like, okay, this is a thing that I actually did do, but you didn't realize it was going to be this bad. But so what happens next? Did they immediately put you in prison, in jail or?
1: No, I sit there for four and a half days or so in the county jail. And then they released me on a bond. And so on bond, uh, meaning pre-trial. So for a year, that was from August 2012 to October of 2013, I was on pre-trial sort of preparing to, you know, go to trial and fight this case. I naively thought that I had a chance with the justice system. Very nice.
0: Well, did you was naively because you just you, in your own understanding or what, after talking to some lawyers or did the lawyers immediately set you
1: it was, straight, it was both. Of- and, and I, I blame it on both of us. I blame it on a, my ego to even think that I could beat the system. But in my head, first time offender education, resume, I wasn't a drug Lord.
0: Right. All you're doing was depositing money for somebody else. Right. And
1: I wasn't even doing the deposit. So the background is the cannabis was shipped to North Carolina. And the people that received it would deposit the funds into my account in North Carolina. And all I would do was take it out up the street. Out of my regular account, I didn't like hide my name. I didn't make an, my regular checking account that I had had since I would have my first job when I was 16.
0: And so you would take it out of the bank and then send it to them? Is that how it would work?
1: No, and then me and Corvain would have lunch because he'd bring me lunch every day and i just give him the cash.
0: Okay, So, so at what point did you realize, uh-oh, I'm in a bit of... Like I'm not going to get out of this so easily.
1: When I showed up to trial, and the prosecution gives his opening statements, and I mean, it's like the movies; it's like something you've never seen before. Um, and he's convincing the jury that I am a kingpin, a drug lord, and he's got a PowerPoint, and he's got spiders on the screen. And then he, they get to my attorney, and they ask him if he has any opening remarks, and he declines. That's when I knew that this was not going to go well.
0: So did you talk to him or her and say, we need to plea or we need to do something? Or at that point, it's too late.
1: At that point, it was too late. At that point, we had what had happened the week before was prosecution in an attempt to scare me tried to revoke my pretrial bond. And I went into that courtroom prepared to plea. I was like, at this point, I, don't, I just don't want to go to jail. Like, he's going to revoke my bond. I'm prepared to plea, but not until I see if the judge is going to revoke the bond. And so the judge against prosecutions will revoke the bond, which pisses off prosecution. And my attorney looks at me and he was like, well, prosecution is pissed off. They don't have much evidence against you. I say we go to trial that's all I needed to hear. I just needed one person to tell me I had a, a fighting chance, right? <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the moment I'll never forget. It's because I was prepared to plea and a plea would have would have been maybe a year. Less. Yeah, no, a year total. Oh, yeah.
0: Or no, just a full year. Oh, wow, 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 wow. All right, so you, how long does the trial last?
1: It starts jury selection on Monday. We started on Tuesday and the verdict came back on Friday.
0: So when you were looking at that jury, did you know that, this was not going well
1: well no one in the jury was black no one we're in north carolina
0: oh yeah this is north carolina okay it's not not california okay no
1: so the my peer my peer jury was probably a median age of 45 50 year old uh white people out of north carolina who i still do not assume that they would go at be biased against me until I realize that there is a money gap. So when I'm explaining to them that a $5,000 bank transaction is not a big deal, you know this, right? We're at Citibank in Beverly Hills. There's lots of money coming in. And I realized that for North Carolina, a five, ten dollars $10,000 transaction is maybe never seen before, unheard of.
0: So it makes you all of a sudden look like Pablo Escobar or something when you're just
1: (laughs) when that's really only two months, you know, $5,000 here is what two months of rent.
0: Right. All right. So did it take them long to deliberate
1: Uh, long enough to grab lunch, maybe about an hour.
0: And were you confident during that lunch that it was going to be a not guilty or did you at that point think I'm screwed here? I'm nervous.
1: I was pretty, I would call it blind faith. And we could talk about that a thousand times on how blind faith is not how you're supposed to handle faith. (laughs) Um, But I did, I I just was very, I did not think that it would go. I thought I was going home. I walked into that courtroom without like even an inch. Like, I don't even think I had butterflies. That's how confident I was.
0: Wow. So it must've been pretty shocking when they read that verdict to you. Did you just break down? I mean, I, I would.
1: I hit, I dropped to the chair, you know, like I put my head in my chair and then my attorney taps me and he's like, get up because we can, we can still fight for a bond. Like there's no chance. So then I kind of toughen up and I stand up and then I hear all the other guilty verdicts. They usher us because I go to trial with two other co-defendants. They usher us in the back room. My attorney tells me that he is going to petition for a bond hearing, and then I never hear from him again.
0: And is this somebody that you were paying a lot of money to?
1: His fee was 35,000. He had gotten 32 in cash.
0: What a racket, huh?
1: Right, my aunt you know, took out the equity in the house and the family home, and then my mom cleared out some of her 401k. And so I still owed him 3000 at trial, and that was his reasoning for not answering any of our phone calls after I was convicted.
0: So at that moment, then you're, the bailiff like puts handcuffs on you, or how does that all go down?
1: Yes, so it's the marshals. They escort you into the back, handcuff you, shackle you, and they take your jury, which is, I guess, not the saddest part of the story, but definitely hurts because I never see my jury again. And I had a amethyst from my aunt that really meant a lot.
0: They just lose it.
1: No one knows where it's at.
0: Unbelievable. Those are the people that should be in jail. All right. So I know that in the article that you wrote for Green Entrepreneur, you know, one of the hardest things with you is you know, putting on suddenly you're having to put on this Velcro jumpsuit at the county jail, right? And that was super uncomfortable and
1: that was terrible. I, I always tell this story to my family as a joke because it's my first night in jail. I've kind of gotten acclimated to the room, right? So they they usher you into like a pod is what it's called with probably like 30 other inmates. And I've sat down, I've got on the phone, some girls have offered me some toiletries. And then they call me up to medical with a group of people. So I still don't know what's going on into like an hour later where they are ushering me to another cell and uh, asked me to get undressed and they hand me this green they called it the turtle suit there but it's like a green padded uh, vest and uh, undressed, put on the vest and now I'm ushered into a cell that doesn't have a, a pad or a bed and I'm trying to sleep and it's my first night in jail just the thought of, there's a lot going on in my head. so breakfast comes at like three or four o'clock in the morning. They knock on the door, they slide the tray. I put it down because I have finally fallen asleep, but then they knock and you only have 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So then they come back and collect it all. And I've not eaten any of it and realize that because I've attempted to ball up in a fetal position because there's no blanket, blanket, there's no pad. All of these, I guess, are luxuries only for those who are not suicidal, then I've rubbed the Velcro up and down my knees and my elbows. So now all of that, I couldn't figure it out the next day, like, what the hell happened? All of that is messed up. Like, Yeah.
0: Were you suicidal? No. You were just, that they thought you were because you were so distraught. Or is that, sorry, is that a sensitive question?
1: No, it's because in the moment, I was not suicidal. There's a questionnaire when they get you in there and they say, have you ever had any thoughts of dangering yourself? And I was like, well, actually, I would jump off of a bridge now. And I don't know how the officer wrote that. So I don't know if that's what led me to suicide watch or if it was during my intake with the nurse. I was extremely hysterical at that point, crying uncontrollably the thoughts of, of my daughter.
0: I mean, that's the harm. So how old is your daughter at this point?
1: She had just turned four on the 8th and I was convicted on the 18th.
0: So you end up spending a lot of more time in that county jail than you were really supposed to, right? And was that a pretty rough place?
1: It was actually the cleanest place. Um, But in in terms of amenities, it was rough. It was, I spent 23 months in a county jail that's typically only to house you for a couple of months while you're waiting to be convicted and shipped to prison. But it was a maximum security uh, county jail. And so I did have my own cell. Um, I didn't have to share that space with anyone. It was really, it was pretty clean, but county jail, food and commissary and toiletries. And it is not like you wear shower shoes. So for 23 months, I wore these really flat sandals. There's no outside. There's like a, a wreck area that has windows at the top so you can get fresh air. And so for 23 months, no one is supposed to live under fluorescent lights.
0: Yeah, no, it's terrible. And I mean, what were the other inmates like? Were they nice or were, were they scary? Uh,
1: it was a little, I'll be honest, it was a little scary at first. And so I, I made sure that I uh, strategized and I made friends with all the big girls. Oh, really? <laughs> that was smart.
0: <laughs> yeah, you see, you made friends with the big girls and you didn't have to do any, you were fine. They were like, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was on the other side of the country, which plays a big part in my jail life and prison life because you are like, Foreigner. Uh, most of these people know each other and, and run with each other. I had sat there for twenty three months. I had seen some women leave and come back four times.
0: Oh my goodness! So what did they think of this 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 Oakland girl? Did they think did that, that they like that? That did you get respect for being like West Coast? I
1: wouldn't call it respect for being West Coast, but I was there for so long that I had earned that respect. Like we had new officers come on, and I would have to tell the officers, "This is how you walk the doors. You press that button." Open this, you know, and so I sort of became the, the pod, I don't know, mascot, I guess. No one else is there for that long.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, because, because you weren't really supposed to be. Do you ever understand why you were there for so long? Was it just a mess up in the bureaucracy of the system?
1: I think because you're waiting for sentencing. So me, Natalia, and Corvain were, sent- uh, were all convicted on the same day. Corvain was sentenced, that was October, I think Corvain was sentenced three or four months later and shipped off. Me and Natalia both were not sentenced until May 2015.
0: Were you with Natalia at this time?
1: We were together.
0: Who is Natalia? I'm sure you probably said this in the beginning of the story. She's a friend that was also working on this. She
1: was a friend who also got involved uh, months months after me. And she, um, we grew up, so she's really like family. Known her my entire life, but. She we were convicted together and then she has medical conditions that was diagnosed in the county jail. And so when that happened, they separated us. But other than that, we had been in the same unit.
0: All right. So finally, they send you to the prison system, which is a little bit better. I mean, it's hard to say jail and prison is ever good, but it's it was better, much more comfortable, like in terms of your living conditions and the food and stuff like that
1: a thousand percent better that it makes you upset that you sat in the county jail for that long because you can go outside and the first count is at like six o'clock in the morning. The last one is at nine thirty, and so from there you are like free-range chickens for better.
0: What did you do to keep yourself interested? Like it must be very boring.
1: This is what the taxpayers are paying for so I learned how to crochet. I did a lot of training. <laughs>
0: If you could make me a sweater after this, I that, could I could
1: make break. oh not so much a sweater, but a really good blanket or a hat. Okay, okay. And I started again during COVID. It it was the craziest thing that when we sheltered in place, how quickly I reverted back to prison activities.
0: Wow, you were probably pretty good at knowing how to be isolated socially and quarantine.
1: Yeah, I ordered some yarn. I ordered some crochet hooks, and I was like, oh, <laughs> back. So
0: that's what you did all day. You just crocheted all day and talked. Yeah, I'd
1: sit outside. I prop my feet up. I crochet. I got really good at ceramic. And so, if anyone was ever looking for me, they check the ceramic room. They check the chapel. Or I'd be right outside uh, crocheting.
0: And do you make friends in
1: prison? Yeah, you don't have a choice. I mean, I made really, I made friends that I'll never live without now. In prison. It wasn't as bad. I was at a camp. And so I always say that because I, I don't know what it's like to be at like a maximum security prison and how dangerous that is. I've been on the phone with Pervain at the USP where I've heard someone get stabbed.
0: Wow. Is he scared? Is he okay? And what's his?
1: Yeah. I, you know, you can't tell a man that he's scared, but he is not affiliated with gangs. And and he's not affiliated with that lifestyle. But because they gave him life, you automatically have to be at the highest level, which is really scary.
0: When you were in prison, did you meet other people that were in prison for cannabis offenses?
1: Yes, I met two beautiful women, uh, Deidre Butler, who was serving, I think a 15 year sentence for uh, uh, cannabis out of the South, out of Louisiana, I believe. And then uh, Stephanie Shepard, who was also a constituent of Last Prisoner Project, was serving a 10 year sentence for cannabis out of New York.
0: What did they done, just minor things or?
1: I can't speak to uh, Deidre's, but Shepherd, Stephanie, was basically a broker. I know someone who's buying. I know someone who's selling and connecting the dots. She, like I, went to trial. And when you go to trial, you lose in more ways than one.
0: So were you able to see your daughter at all during, I mean, you were able to see her, but how often were you able to see her?
1: So in Mecklenburg, in the county jail, I didn't see her at all. Uh, The visits were behind the window for 30 minutes only. And so you know, bringing a four-year-old to see their mother through glass for 30 minutes just would have never made sense. And so two years later, when I'm transferred to Victorville to the county jail, which is only a, not too far, about 45 minutes from L.A., I could see her during the summers because she spent the summers with her dad. So during the summers, I seen her maybe every other weekend for a stretch of two months. And then I wouldn't see her again until, uh, you know, like a holiday And then I was shipped to Arizona. And so then I I think she came to Arizona three times.
0: Well, those must have been very hard, those meetings.
1: Yeah, the roughest one was, so when they transferred me from Victorville to Arizona the second time, they allowed her dad to drive me. And so she rode, and so that was, our first time. And so she's probably seven at this time. That was our first time in the car and in the world together. But it's only a six hour drive and I'm going from one prison to the next. And so that's when I realized sort of the damage that was being done because she didn't lose it. She didn't. But she just let the tears roll down. And and I knew then that my daughter was learning how to control her emotions for my sake.
0: Fast forward. So how long were you in prison?
1: A total of five years, three
0: months um all for depositing some money for somebody for a substance that is legal in many states
1: for a substance that never should have been illegal
0: yep very good point so you are out of jail and then just you know people say sometimes you know when you leave prison it's so hard to acclimate right because you and even for somebody like you who had a normal life before they went to prison Was it very hard to adjust and get to know your daughter again and that kind of stuff?
1: Emotionally, it continues to be a challenging adjustment, adjusting back to being a mother, a daughter, a sister, a friend. I spent five years really just worried about what are we going to eat for lunch? What are we watching for movie night? And so emotionally... Even grieving, right? Like I just recently am going through pictures of my daughter when I was gone and I, I don't know that child, right? And so grieving the loss of the five years is still a challenging transition. What I thought was gonna be easy was the work transition. I have, I've always been a good employee. I've always had a good resume. I've got a nice education. That was not gonna be an issue for me. And it wasn't until it was, right? <laughs> i came home and i got hired at a hotel the omni in san francisco super excited to be working there i i've always admired the omni just in Um, because of Oprah always sponsored her guests there. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And so I was just, yeah,
1: I was super stoked to get on there. And then two months in, someone Googled my name and took it to Human Resources. And they had done their due diligence. She had already done a background check. I had passed it. I couldn't figure out how I passed it. She couldn't figure out how I passed it, but I had. And then she ran my name three more times after the... Google incident, and I passed all of those background checks, and none of that saved my job. I was asked to pack up my belongings.
0: so that's really hard because here you are. you haven't even done anything wrong. Did you ever feel guilt about what you did even like have you ever regretted? I mean, obviously do you regret it, but what's your feeling about it?
1: My feeling has changed, and I'm so appreciative of that, and that's where a uh, last person a project comes in because guilt. And regret will sort of eat at you. And so the prison system, after telling me I deserve 24 years in prison and then in in turn giving me seven years and then separating me and I lost so much while I was gone that I definitely had started to adopt this idea that I had done something terribly wrong and that I was, you know, facing the consequences and almost deserved it because, That's just what the system was set up to. How could I not think I had done something terribly wrong while sitting in prison? And now I look back at it now. What I had done wrong was go to trial.
0: Right. If you had just said no, said please. It
1: wasn't the crime, right? I've always, and I stand by it now, which is why I said the plant should have never been illegal. And in transitioning from the Omni to Last Prisoner Project and being able to share my story and have so many people listen, care, and feel heard is shifting my idea of you broke a terrible law to it was a terrible law, right? And so that is definitely helping to validate my experience. And I will always regret it because of the the consequences that my family suffered. But I don't feel like I broke a, a law. I don't feel like a criminal.
0: <laughs> I don't think you're a criminal. And I think Tell me a little bit about how the Last Prisoner Project, how you guys found each
1: other. So it was right after I got let go. (laughs) And they had already been in contact with Corvain uh, because, like I said, they gave him a life sentence for cannabis. There's no other drugs. There's no gun. It's nonviolent. And so they had already been in contact with him and helping him with his clemency when he told them, you know, you should talk to Evelyn. And so I got to sit down with Steve D'Angelo at Harborside, did an interview similar to this. And I thought that was going to be it. And it has turned into so much more. I'm almost the face of it. I put a face to the story of their mission, which is, you know, all pots, all cannabis prisoners need to be set free. And those prisoners don't have a face. Those inmates don't have a face. And I've I've been able to be that face and share my story. And I think it helps that I am not the image that people assume um, fits the description of an inmate in prison. Yeah.
0: That's for sure.
1: Um, <laughs> well, I have that going.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you got this job at Fertosa. Did, did Last prisoner Project help you find another job in the cannabis space? Or was that something they found you? Or how did that all happen?
1: It is both of those. So Last prisoner Project is building a re-entry program. And, and I'll be on board with that. But it is not in place yet. And so they were doing a fundraiser at Big Rock here in San Francisco where they just asked me to come speak share the story and in the audience was the chief innovation officer austin and the ceo ben and they heard the story and they austin connected me with me right away he's like what do you do we need you and i was like i'm an events coordinator i do events like i don't even have a space in the cannabis i'm not a grower i'm not a but like i don't i don't even i haven't even put myself in the cannabis space and two weeks later he reached out and he was like we need an events director which has evolved into community engagement manager. And so it worked.
0: So what do you do? What does that that job actually do?
1: Pre-COVID, it was a lot of events. I never realized that the cannabis industry is as popular as it is, but there's an expo, there's a conference literally twice a month and uh, Vertosa being a new startup wanting to have a presence at all of that, that was sort of under my bandwidth to make sure that we were there, set up, et cetera. Post COVID, because none of that is happening, I have started the Heart of Cannabis, which is an IG Live that goes every Thursday from Virtosa Inc at five o'clock. And then I am taking care of all of our virtual events. I feel like there's webinars. There's so many more webinars. I can't wait.
0: So many more. (laughs) I know. I know, yeah, and then you gotta you gotta hear from people like me. you gotta go and oh,
1: no, this the podcast is the fun stuff. This is the fun stuff. And so yeah, I'm Vertosa is really set on having a presence in the community. And so that is my job to make sure that we are engaged.
0: So what do you hope happens as a result of your experience and your work with Last Visioner Project and Vertosa? Are you confident that all marijuana convictions will be expunged at some point or? Are you just focused on people with sort of minor cannabis convictions like you? I don't know what a, I don't really know what the difference between a minor and a major because it's cannabis is cannabis. Unless you've killed somebody or harmed somebody, that's different. Right,
1: which is, which is what it should be. I am not confident that uh, cannabis will be legal. I just don't have that sort of confidence, that blind faith in our system. But I do have faith that it will be decriminalized. And hoping and my mission and purpose is that once it is decriminalized that the 40,000 inmates that are currently incarcerated will find some relief in that, but my main concern is because that's sort of beyond me that's above that's dc that's laws i don't have uh, any criminal justice background and so my energy right now will be on reentry because i am realizing that reentry to society is a much tougher burden than i ever thought it would be right securing housing you can't if you have a cannabis conviction you you don't qualify for any assistance for food or for housing or you are completely cut off. And so it's like you've gone to prison for cannabis. You come home, you can't get any assistance with housing. And then you get a job like me and you're fired. It's like what what do you want? What do you want us to do? And and that's when I realized what recidivism is. Like I knew what it was, but I couldn't comprehend how someone could leave jail and go back. Like, I would look at people and I absolutely could not comprehend what would make you break another law to come back to this place.
0: And now you see, because it's hard. It can be hard out but
1: there. But it's hard. It's hard. You got to eat.
0: All right. Well, Evelyn LaChapelle, this has been so fascinating. Again, thank you for being so candid and honest with me. And you're you're such a great spokesperson for the cause. And I wish you all the best. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com. Check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, Check out my other podcast, Write About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.